Welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. We're kicking off the new year with a radical proposal for extending social protections, the Universal Basic Income, or UBI. The concept is simple. A UBI is a regular benefit provided in cash without conditions to everyone. This is such a big topic, we've divided it into two episodes. In this episode, we'll look at the UBI and the world of work. Fears around automation and the changing nature of work fuel popular and policy interest in the UBI. But the prevailing narrative that welfare makes people lazy and less inclined to work may be one of the biggest obstacles to overcome if a UBI is ever to be achieved. We'll unpack the evidence around whether a UBI could change the way we value work and what that could mean for gender equality and workers' bargaining power. We'll also look at how arguments for and against the UBI play out across the political spectrum. Then, in next month's episode, we'll look at how a UBI could fit more broadly into social protection systems, asking whether it would be a major disruption or just another plank in the social protection floor. In both episodes, I'm speaking with Francesca Bastali and Dr. Jürgen de Vispelara. Francesca Bastali is Director of the Equity and Social Policy Program and Principal Research Fellow at ODI. Amongst many topics, her recent research includes adapting social protection to the future of work and employment. She was also the host of our special series with ODI on this podcast last year, which asked whether COVID-19 marked a turning point for social protection. Dr. Jürgen de Vispelara is Assistant Professor at the Stockholm School of Economics in Riga and Adjunct Professor in the Philosophy of Social Policy at Tampereira University. He is a leading expert on the politics of basic income and founding co-editor of Basic Income Studies, an interdisciplinary journal of basic income research. Hi, Joe. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Francesca, can I start with you to set us up for this discussion? What are the key trends that UBI advocates are responding to and how is a universal basic income seen as the solution? So one of the reasons why we see a renewed interest in universal basic income, and this is even prior to COVID-19, is a sense that the economy and social protection and wider fiscal policies aren't delivering for parts of the population. We're seeing persistent or growing inequalities within countries across many dimensions and a sense that existing policies that are meant to address these, including cash transfer programs, while they may be effective, in many cases continue to be exclusionary, to not deliver to their full potential, and to in some cases even possibly reinforce inequalities. So if you take the world of work, recent trends are expected to further exacerbate some of the gaps we're seeing through the rise in non-standard employment and work insecurity, high informality, the threat of job losses through automation. And equally, if you take long-standing inequalities, like those associated with the undervaluation of certain types of work, such as care work, and it's an equal distribution between men and women, these are really shining a spotlight on social protection gaps and limitations. These policy shortcomings arise from policy design and implementation, but also from how policies in practice interact with existing inequalities in, in the world of work. 
For example, exclusion arises from the persistent assumption underpinning policy that workers are in or are moving towards full-time standard employment. This is still the case in, in many social insurance schemes. And by the way, women who are more likely to work in part-time work and to follow interrupted work patterns are especially at risk of exclusion from, from these sorts of schemes. So these are just examples of the sorts of issues and concerns that have over the years and, and increasingly led to growing questions around the practices of narrow means testing, strict conditionalities or behavioral requirements in welfare provision and in cash transfers. Jürgen, for a long time, a universal basic income seemed like very much a hypothetical concept. Why do you think it's gaining such momentum now? When you actually think about the sort of problems that basic income is meant to be good at addressing, these are actually old problems. We're talking about things like poverty, economic inequality, social inequality in a broader sense, you know, including very importantly, gender inequality. I mean, even, even all the stuff around artificial intelligence, this is not the first time around that we're talking about technological unemployment, for example, right? I mean, these are things that have happened before. So in my view, at least, one of the things that really has been very instrumental in capturing the imagination is the fact that we actually ended up having some concrete events. And then from there, you kind of had a boom of interest, you know, media interest, public interest, policy interest, and even politicians at some point started paying attention. So one of the things that happened, for example, 2016, we had the Swiss referendum. And one of the interesting things about this Swiss referendum, of course, it never got fully supported, but the campaign itself was a major media attraction. Then we did have these pilots and experiments happening. So for me, one of the most important aspects of all these experiments, whether this is Finland, Netherlands, Barcelona, and even the ones that got cancelled, like in Ontario and Canada, is that we suddenly have something happening on the ground that gives us news and something to talk about. So, you know, so suddenly it's not hypothetical anymore. So that's a really important part of what is going on. But when we're talking about the problems... This is really about seeing this kingdom as a solution to the same old problems that we have been struggling with for decades and we keep struggling with. So as you've just touched on, Francesca, the changing nature of work is certainly invoked in the UBI debate, that the UBI itself presents real challenges to our fundamental ideas about the importance of work to societies and individuals and, and how work should be linked to protections. There's this fundamental aversion to the idea of somebody receiving payments like a UBI without contributing, quote unquote, productively to society. So would a UBI lead as some fear to more people opting out of work? And what would the consequences of that be? I think one of the really positive things about this renewed interest in the UBI is that it questions the, the prevailing concept of work in terms of paid work and motivations for work in terms of financial incentives. So as you say, I mean, debates on cash transfers and income support schemes have tended to focus on concerns about the participation in paid work. There's a concern that income support schemes can generate incentives for people to work less. One of the reasons why we might see this is if a cash transfer is targeted or means tested to 
people on the basis of income or assets is that this might generate an incentive for people to maintain low incomes. So on this, in principle, a UBI would not generate that type of incentive because it's paid universally to everyone. It would weaken the concern that people might reduce their participation in paid work. They don't need to maintain low incomes. Others argue that it would lead a higher number of people to work less or to participate less in paid work uh, precisely because there's no conditionality attached. There's a growing body of evidence that indicates that this is frankly not a concern. We don't see mass reductions in participation in paid work, whether linked to a UBI or indeed other types of you know, quasi-UBI minimum income schemes. And, and there are various reasons for this. So one of the reasons that, you know, that we see an absence of a sort of clear negative effect in participation in paid work is discussed in terms of the levels of the transfer. Another has to do with the fact that participation in paid work might actually increase in association with the receipt of a transfer because it enables people to tackle barriers such as the costs associated with, with travel or, or care of family members. So all of this to say that in aggregate terms, the evidence indicates that there's no reason really for concern of mass aggregate reduction in participation in paid employment. There are, however, some variations by population subgroups. There's some evidence, for instance, of people working less um, among older persons, uh, among women with, with care responsibilities, particularly when they are sort of secondary earners in a couple, or indeed of youth. But often, and in fact generally, these are associated with people dedicating more time to other types of work. This is you know, a shift, a shift in how time is spent and, and what work is being undertaken, a shift towards more time spent on other types of activities that are of value to individuals and possibly more widely to society. So I think a key point here comes back to how we define work, how we value it, and how we define productivity. It really depends, you know, what are we talking about? Once we consider that work includes work that is unpaid or that is low paid, but it is, that is of critical value to society, then actually any reduction in participation in paid work might be you know, equally valuable, just that it's not in monetary terms. One of the really, really interesting features of basic income is that it's meant to support you in work and it's meant to support you out of work. Basic income does not disappear when you move into a job or when you move from, say, part-time to full-time and so on and so forth. People always look at this one side of the thing. You know, they always think of, oh, my God, we have these people who get money for nothing and they're all going to leave work. But actually, this kingdom, as much as anything else, is actually also helping people to get into work, working more, changing work, you know, basically changing careers, which may have all sorts of very beneficial effects. And on top of that is then this big issue. And this has always been a very central idea in the basic income discussion that, you know, work isn't the be all and end all. We are talking about social participation. We're talking about social contribution in a broader sense. Now, a lot of social protection systems effectively prevent you from doing that often. It's like you're either working or you're sitting at home trying to get work, you know, and you're so focused on trying to get work that you're not allowed to do anything else. You're literally often not allowed to do anything else. Basic income takes a very, very different view here. It basically says, look, 
you know, the opposite to people not being in work. It's not that they're lazy and, you know, sitting on the couch and being Homer Simpson all day. I mean, that's this sort of scary image that everyone else has, right? Everyone has this idea that the moment we introduce basic income, we're creating a society of Homer Simpsons. Well, there's always going to be some Homer Simpsons around, right? So in any policy, we all know that. But basic income is not doing that. What basic income is meant to be doing is supporting all these other activities at the same time as well, you know, both acknowledging and actively supporting all sorts of contributions. Jürgen, you said just now that a UBI might help people as they change jobs and careers. There's an argument that goes even further and suggests that a universal basic income could allow people to leave undesirable work, which in theory might put pressure on employers to increase wages or improve work conditions. Would a UBI improve the bargaining position for workers, do you think? So I've written on this with one of my colleagues, Simon Birnbaum, and we actually are quite a bit skeptical about this. So the standard argument is exactly that. And it's become a big argument in the basic income debate, right? Which is to say, at the moment, people are trapped in bad jobs. And the reason for that is because they depend on their income, so they can't leave their jobs. You give them a basic income and suddenly they can basically tell their bosses, look, you know, you either give me better conditions, better wages, better benefits, more, you know, amenable time, or else I'm taking my job elsewhere or my labor power, so to speak. And the the other thing about that is that employers are meant to sort of anticipate this and, and adjust their perspectives and actually offer people better things. So what's the problem with that? We think that in many cases, this sort of exit is a bit of a hollow threat, you know, even under a basic income, workers can't really easily leave their jobs, right? And then the question is, is there a risk with just taking your basic income and leaving, right? And the big risk of that is, of course, that you don't find another suitable job that's much, much better. And the labor markets, the way they are at the moment, for many, many people, and I'm thinking especially precarious workers who may not have the sort of skills to be able to move around in many, many different types of jobs, or they may not be able to to relocate. So for all these reasons, it it may just not be possible for people to leave with a basic income that easily. Also keeping in mind that the basic income doesn't replace everything that the wage does, right? It's not including benefits. Many people depending on their job for healthcare benefits and so on and so forth. You take all that together, What that basically means is employers are just not going to buy into this because they realize it's not that obvious. Now, if employers don't buy into this, then, you know, two things can happen. One, the people end up without a job and could be worse off it. And even better than that, I mean, now we're talking about automation. You know, we worry that basic income's exit threat strategy basically is an excuse for employers to start making people more redundant. So what's the take-home message of that? It's not that basic income is a bad thing. Basic income can do a lot of really, really good things. But we're just very concerned about this exit threat argument as such, the bargaining power argument. It's really, really overplayed. And we think that what, what is needed, at the moment, this is largely a theoretical argument. We should have some empirical evidence 
to look into this. And that empirical evidence has to be very sensitive to the fact that there's a lot of different types of workers, a lot of different types of jobs, and a lot of different types of sectors in the labor market. So it may be that a basic income could improve bargaining power for certain workers in certain jobs in certain sectors of the economy. But to think that that's an argument that's going to sort of change the whole labor market and sort of massively improve bargaining power across the board, that's something that we don't buy into. We started to talk about how a UBI could allow people to shift, to some extent anyway, from paid work into other forms of valued work like care, volunteering, some of these other things. Given that care responsibilities are disproportionately borne by women, it's interesting to consider the gendered aspects of this shift. Francesca, can I ask you, would a UBI advance gender equality, as some have claimed? So, uh, Joe, you very usefully described what a UBI is at the beginning and some of its defining features, the fact that it's uh, universal, unconditional, paid on a, on a regular basis, does hold potential for addressing some of the persistent gender inequalities in the world of work. In particular, many existing income support schemes or, or cash transfers are designed around households as a unit. They're commonly conditional, that is, they, they have certain behavioral requirements attached to them. But as regards the, the role of women, some of these cash transfers are designed around assumptions about the gender division of, of labor and the role of women uh, in society. These are often framed in terms of behavioral requirements for children to for instance, be enrolled in school, to attend school regularly, to undertake regular health visits. This is a classic example of where an existing cash transfer, while targeting women, essentially, may end up and commonly does end up reinforcing the role of a woman as a primary care provider. And this is true for other types of income support schemes that women are in receipt of primarily in their role as care providers or as, as wives and widows. In this respect, a UBI holds considerable potential, A, because it's paid to women as individuals, so it would be paid to, to people individually and not, not with respect to their role in a household, and because it's unconditional. So by being paid to individuals and by freeing up uh, any behavioral requirement, it holds potential to address some of these underpinning assumptions about, uh, for instance, the gender division of labor. So more specifically, a UBI could help ensure that women participate in paid employment by freeing up their time in societies where care services are not publicly provided. A UBI could be spent on paying for such services, allowing women to move into paid employment if that's you know, what's desired and, and the opportunities are there. So these are ways in which a UBI might help to value unpaid work and address the unequal distribution of, of unpaid work and, and care work in particular. On the other hand, there are concerns that a UBI may, may reinforce the gender division of labor because it, what may happen is that any reduction in paid work associated with a regular you know, income transfer paid individually might be taken by those with weaker labor market attachments. So those with lower pay, secondary earners that typically are women in couples. I think there's particularly evidence around women with children in a couple where the secondary earner, yes, may step back from paid employment. 
and coming back to the conversations we've just had and, and that Jürgen also has emphasized, you know, this is not necessarily a negative outcome. We just need to be mindful of, you know, if this is reinforcing certain gender divisions of labor, that this, you know, needs to be taken into account. But, you know, this can happen too. I think what is key is that whether and in what direction a UBI would influence inequalities in the distribution of unpaid work uh, will depend critically on the wider efforts in policies and, and the wider policy configurations around tackling gender norms and, and regulating care provision and the, more broadly the provision of services. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because another factor, of course, is that if you're in paid work or at least in formal paid work, that might also come with more protections over the life cycle, like pensions and some of those things that are presumably worth more ultimately than a basic income, which by definition is quite basic. While we're on this subject, I think progressive social protections, organised labour, even gender equality, these are issues that might traditionally be associated with left or at least perhaps progressive-leaning politics. When it comes to the UBI, though, there are proponents and sceptics on the right of politics as well as the left. Jürgen, how do different political ideologies translate the UBI to align with their own political views? So, so the standard way to pitch this is that we have a left case for basic income and we have a right-wing case for basic income, right, in terms of politics. And the right-wing case, it's all basically about in innovating the way we organize social security against changes in the labor market, et cetera. But there are a lot of constraints on that. So, you know, budget control is very important, right? So the right doesn't like new taxes and so on. So it all has to fit the existing budget. The basic income itself has to be quite limited because, you know, work incentives are primary. And, and you know, uh, this idea that there always has to be a quid pro quo, you shouldn't be giving any freebies and so on and so forth, right? On the left, then, the argument is a lot more sort of comprehensive and expansive. So there, the idea is that basic income itself could be much, much more generous. We're talking about securing income floors. We're talking about addressing poverty and uh, inequality, including gender inequality and so on and so forth. Uh, funding there is often about uh, adding taxes onto it, right? It's perfectly okay. You know, we need to tax the rich more or even the middle classes. We need to find new taxes and new ways to tax, and that's where we'll all pay it off. So there's still a very strong current that thinks that, you know, because basic income has support amongst the left and the right and everyone in the middle and so on and so forth, that this is this sort of major bridging type of proposal, right? And, and I've always thought that this was a bit weird. So one, one of the things that we see is that we, we often have a sort of a lot of agreement around this kingdom across the political divides until you get to the details, Right. So, for example, on, on, on the left, there are the people who argue that a basic income is great because, in a way, it sidesteps some of these things like organized trade unions and it just secures individual rights. And they think that that's a progressive case for it. Right. There is a progressive case there. And at the same time, at the left, you have people who worry about this because they say, actually, you know, in history, trade unions have been so important and we don't want anything eating into our collective rights and so on and so forth. So you have two progressive, fundamentally different positions, and they might support basic income, but under very different conditions again. There's a famous argument 
the left side of the debate, if you like, which sees basically income as a Trojan horse. You know, it's kind of just a way of dismantling welfare state and other type of established social protection programs. Now, for, for sure, that's not the intention of the majority of the basic income proponents at all. But in a way, the danger could be there. And there definitely are right-wing proponents who really do see basic income as, okay, let's kind of get rid of all sorts of programs. We just put a very flat rate universal payment and be done with it, right? The thing that I find in a way more useful is sort of the opposition between what you might call a pragmatic basic income, a basic income that works within the system. And in some sense, try to sort of deal with, uh, you know, things that are going bad in the system at the moment, you know, all sorts of traps and dysfunctionalities and gaps and tries to patch that up, but fundamentally leaves the system in place. And that is a very different way of thinking about basic income as opposed to a much more sort of transformative basic income. And the transformative basic income, those are the people who really kind of want to change the system and think that once we have a basic income in place, you know, at the end of that, so to speak, we will be in a very different type of social economic system. We have very different relations between each other, between workers, employers, between people inside the household and so on and so forth. So that I think is a fundamental difference between sets of arguments that work within the system versus sets of arguments that really aim to change the system. And again, you know, that's a very, very strong opposition. And it sort of crosses the left and the right a bit, right? So on the left, again, you know, you have a lot of people who are okay with basic income within the system. And then you have people who push for basic income to change the system, right? So that's that's even within one political group. But the pragmatics and the transformational people, I mean, getting them to agree on a basic income, that is a really problematic issue as well, right? And I think that's a more fundamental distinction, a more helpful distinction as well, compared to just thinking about left versus right. We'll pick this up again in February in part two of our series on universal basic income when we'll look at the UBI as part of a broader social protection system. Is it affordable? Is it equitable? What are the trade-offs? And has COVID changed the equation? We give basic income to the rich because it benefits the poor. Once you start to factor in the political economy dynamics of public policy, some of the intuitively you know, appealing aspects of targeting, frankly, are weakened. And actually, the arrow would point towards the potential benefits of uh, fully universal or indeed more universalistic and unconditional approaches. Does it all come down to cost? Well, for me, it all comes down to politics. But unfortunately, the cost is a huge part of politics. We'll end this episode as we always do with some quick wins. Each month, we ask a guest to give a quick roundup of news, achievements or research that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. With me today is Zara Rizvi. Zara is a senior expert working at the intersection of humanitarian practice and social protection with a focus on cash transfers. Late last year, she worked with socialprotection.org to moderate the big social protection event, subtitled, You Spoke Up, We Listened, But What Should We Do Next? 
So in case you missed that event back in November, we wanted to highlight some of the really interesting discussion. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Jill. How are you doing? So the big event was about creating an inclusive space where people could let off steam about what was really bothering them, but also what was motivating them while they have been working on social protection during COVID-19. So tell us, what were your key takeaways from that whole event? First of all, thanks for having me on here. I love the podcast. I love what uh, SP.org is doing around this and creating this community of practice for all of us. And this SP event was one of those experiments. We had seven women, senior women on the panel, which of course, as a moderator, you can imagine was quite uh, crazy to try and do. But we had all the actors on that panel that we always say need to be in the room. We had Marie Rose Romaine Murphy that was on there and she works with and has co-founded a local community-based organization in Haiti. And she was really stressing correctly, you know, we need to look at co-creating solutions at the local level. You know, how can we enable local innovation and what does investment look like around that. And this was a theme that kept coming up over and over again. Like we need context-driven solutions, people-centered solutions. All the speakers went into that. There was an interesting thing that uh, Catherine Teich from World Vision, she's the global director of many different things, but humanitarian cash is one of the things that she's also looking at. And um, they have a citizen toolkit. And how can you get that community engagement? How can we be, again, supporting communities around that and you know when we talk about disasters and cyclical natures of disasters that's where we had Yolanda Wright from Save the Children coming in you know with the COVID year that we've had with a lot of the attention being paid around this nexus the humanitarian plus development so she was really coming in from that angle she's the head of global poverty of save the children and i loved what she said that we need to crack the nexus because you can't adapt to starvation we keep talking about like oh we're going to adapt we're going to do these things it's such a powerful line there that you can't adapt to starvation and i absolutely loved that she was bringing that up we had from ECHO and their office in Nairobi, Sigrid Kulke, and she looks at, well, the nexus between humanitarian and development with a focus on forced displacement. And one of the things that struck me about what she was saying, I mean, a lot of frustration as well there in terms of like, how are we going to crack this nexus and sort of a call for humanitarian actors and development actors to use ECHO funding in a way to pilot projects to use the funding for a prototype that then can be taken over to the development side. One of the big issues that came out of the event was coordination and the UN especially was uh, signaled out for that. And for that, we had asked uh, Natalia Windarasi, the head of social policy at UNICEF, to come and address that issues. Well done her for just meeting it head on. She had this brilliant list of, you know, these are the challenges at the country level, but there is complementarity between the different actors. We, we need to be able to look at it and figure out how do we in fact work together. And it was good to see that coming up and talking about coordination and complementarity because uh, Madam Cecilia Mbaka, she's the head of uh, social protection in Kenya. She is part of the government. And her point was really, you know, it has to be government led. And that is how they are doing it in Kenya 
along with UN agencies, they have a framework so everybody is able to deliver as one. And something that we don't talk about that much, a lot of these things are actually personality driven as well on the coordination side. And she was like, you need to have a good relationship with your focal point in the government, you know, who is doing that coordination so that it all can, in fact, come together. The last speaker was Petrona Davies, the permanent secretary from the Ministry of Health and Social Development in the British Virgin Islands. You know, she addressed and talked about how in the British Virgin Islands, they had these really awful hurricanes in 2017, where they had a social assistance response, basically, but it was a humanitarian response, you know, a big cash program got set up, it was done jointly with the government. But what was incredible is that they were able to take all of those lessons and apply it to COVID. And this time, it was a fully government led response, it was heavy on the social assistance side. But we're coming on to two years of COVID, massive social assistance uh, responses across the world. And what she was saying was, you know, let's look at social protection in a wider way. You know, there, there is more to social protection than just social assistance. So where is the social insurance part of it? Where is the labor market policies? Because even a government cannot continue to keep doing social assistance forever. So, yeah, just a lot of great discussion and resources that were put out there. And I was just super pleased, privileged, in fact, to be able to moderate an event like that. Yes. And, and for an event that started conceptually as an event, it was really interesting to see how tension around, for example, issues like the humanitarian nexus. You know, I do think people were quite openly kind of pushing at ideas, but rebutting other, other thoughts. And, and I thought it was, was great. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you for having me. It is always a pleasure. And thank you for joining us for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection. You can follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and look for us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram and YouTube. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and we are always so grateful when you leave a review. Back next month with more on Universal Basic Income. See you then.